Good morning, church. Uh, thank you, uh, Madala. That was a wonderful greeting. Um, we are gearing up towards Easter. I'm sure you picked that up from the announcements. It's coming thick and fast. Very excited about that. And our, the text is lining up perfectly because today we find ourselves in Mark chapter 14 and we're 12 hours before uh, the cross. It's midnight, Thursday night, and Jesus is with his disciples. They've just finished uh, a meal, and uh, now we're going to see Jesus at his weakest. And the disciples are going to offer little uh, or no support, and there's going to be much to learn for the weak believer facing trials and temptations from this text. I'd love you to turn to Mark chapter 14. Uh, we're going to read from verse 26 to 42, and I'm going to get going. And they went to a place, sorry, 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John um, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. In verse 26, they've finished their meal, and it says they've sung a hymn. And I never knew this, but in my preparation, I read one of the commentators said that it was common practice for the Jewish, uh, the devout Jew at the end of this Passover meal to spend hours sitting around a table talking about God's redemptive acts in the past and the future. And when I read that, I just thought, isn't it wonderful that in just over a week's time, we are going to be sitting around a table in our small groups, having a meal with Easter just on the horizon, 
And the whole goal of that meal is to remember what God has done in the past and to trust Him for what He's going to do in the future. We are following in the footsteps of Jesus and His disciples that night, talking about these things. And even the sentence they sung a hymn, I wrongly assumed we would never know what they were singing. Thankfully, in my preparation, someone helped me see that there was a pattern of song that they would choose to sing from the Psalms. It was always the same four Psalms, started in Psalm 115 and ended on Psalm 118. And that means, and I'm going to turn to Psalm, I don't have it on the screen, so if some of you want to turn there with me, I'm not going to read it all because we don't have enough time. But I want to turn to the Psalm and just highlight a few things because we know what Jesus, what was on his lips just as he was walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane. It's going to make the psalm come alive for you. It's going to add so much color to it. It's wonderful to know where in the journey of Jesus the Old Testament scriptures were relevant to him. But listen to some of these wonderful snippets from Psalm 118 and think about the fact that he's going to die on the cross in 12 hours. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. These are the words Jesus is singing as he's walking to Gethsemane. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And this is the gospel powerfully portrayed to you now. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. It's talking about Jesus. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. All of this in Psalm 118. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And it was quite powerful in my preparation to uh, read that psalm again that I know fairly well, but to realize this was sung by Jesus on the night as he was preparing to walk to Gethsemane. And it says, and when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. But Jesus says something to them. They've had a bit of a tough evening. They've had a wonderful meal. It's been great. But Jesus, a bit earlier in the night, said something that shocked them. He said, one of you is going to betray me. And they didn't know who, they, who he meant. They all thought it was them. That means Judas had done quite a good job of playing the part because none of you jumped into their minds. Oh, wait, he's a bit shady, that guy. We've seen him do a bit. Uh, a few things that were surprising. That makes sense. None of them did that with Judas. They all first looked at themselves and thought, is it me? 
And I think if I was sitting around the table, my, my first thought would be, is it me? My second thought would be, I've got an 11 to 1 chance, it's not me. Because he only said one will betray, that means the rest of us are going to stand firm. So I try and find a bit of consolation in the fact that maybe it won't be me. I don't know if you were ever like that at school. It reminds me of sometimes with the teacher standing up to the front of the class and we were all given instructions and then the teacher will say, only one of you out of 30, only one of you did follow my instructions. And I remember hanging my head in shame thinking, my odds are not good. <laughs> one out of 30. The, the disciples are in a bit better shape. But now Jesus says something that's uh, even worse because he says to them, you will all fall away. You've got nowhere to hide now. You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is quoting from Zechariah, and there's something very powerful in this quote in Zechariah where he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. It's helpful to think who are the role players in this prophecy. The shepherd is Jesus. The sheep are the disciples. They're about to be scattered. Jesus is about to be struck. But it says, I will strike the shepherd. Do you want to know who I is? It's God. The context of the prophecy before that, if you read in Zechariah, God is speaking. And God says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is quoting this to help us see that even though what's about to happen is um, an awful experience for him and something he wants to get away from if he can, he also knows that this is not done by the hands of Judas Iscariot, although Judas is involved. This is not done by the hands of the chief priests and chief scribes, although they're all involved. This is not even done by the hand of Satan, although he's involved. This is done by the sovereign hand of God who is in control of all things. God wants Jesus to be struck that night, and it is prophesied, and everything happens exactly the way God has intended it to happen. But Jesus makes three predictions, and they only pick up on the first. I'll read his whole uh, prophecy to you or his whole statement and let's see if you can see the other two the other two are more subtle he says you will all fall away for it is written I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered but after I am raised up I will go before you to Galilee Jesus makes three predictions about the disciples and they only heard one the obvious prediction, the one you're also hearing, is you will all fall away. So this night, you will uh, abandon me. Prediction number one. And it happens. But the second prediction says this. I don't know if you, you noticed it. It says, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. That means that they will survive. Now, you might not think, we know, we have the hindsight story. We know all of the apostles survived. But think of it from their perspective for a moment. Jesus is about to be captured. This is a, a, a train that a group of people are on. It's called the Make Israel Great Again train. All right? And 
and they think it's heading in a certain direction and they're all part of this group and Jesus is gonna become king and they're all gonna sit alongside of him so they get to take part in his victory. But that also means that if this train is actually to be derailed by the hand of God who's driving at the wheel and collapses and falls to the point where Jesus will die, what does that mean for the rest of us who are part of his troop? If I was one of them, I'd think I'm also gonna die. But the prediction that you will abandon me is followed by the prediction you will survive. You are not gonna die tonight. Because after I'm raised up, I am going to go ahead of you and meet you again. That means you survive tonight. That's the second thing they missed that. The third one is, I'm gonna restore you. I'm gonna go before you and meet you again in Galilee. And that's where Jesus meets Peter. He restores him. He meets the disciples. They're all restored, even though they are part of this epic failure where they've abandoned God. God's heart in response to them is, I am going ahead of you, and I will restore you. They missed that. And I think we miss it too sometimes. Because my first point uh, this morning is that everyone falls. This isn't just about the twelve. We will all fall in our walk. We will all let God down. And sitting here this morning, some of you are carrying recent guilt and shame over dropping the ball over something God wanted you to do or some unfulfilled vow. And as much as that's going to happen to all of us because we're all sinful still, the wonderful promise to you this morning is you're going to survive because you're in Christ, and he's going to restore you. Some of you are sitting far off this morning, and you don't need to. God's stance to you is not one of rebuke and anger. God's stance to you is one of, I love you. I want to restore you. Sometimes Christians stand far off in the room. God's, you know, if you draw a picture and you put God somewhere in the room, we're allowed to be right there near him because we're his children. But actually, in your heart, you've moved yourself far away from him because of your own failures and the things that you've done. And this morning, Jesus' word should encourage you. I will go before you to Galilee. Peter refuses to believe that he's going to fall away. And it's worth spending some time looking at his response. Peter often gets a bad rap. We um, uh, see him saying often fairly silly things. He's the leader of the group. He's the um, most outgoing, and uh, he often says stuff that we could look down upon. And tonight, you could, well, when I say tonight, I mean tonight in their text. This night when he says, um, no, everyone else will fall away but me. I mean, that sounds pretty arrogant. Even if everyone else falls away, I will not. And he's not lying when he says that. He means it. He's not thinking something else. This is what he's thinking. I will not fall away, even if everyone else does. He means it from the very depths of him. Peter is an all-out kind of guy. Go big, go home. And Jesus says something quite profound because not only does he say, you're going to fall away, he says, you're going to three times. 
You're going to have three opportunities in the next 12 hours to say that you are with me. And each time you are going to uh, deny me. And it's quite something to prophesy. It's quite something to have been fulfilled. Here is someone who is dead set on they are willing to kill themselves to be with Jesus. And they mean that. He's not lying. He means it. How do we know? When the uh, soldiers come to get Jesus and Peter thinks, and they're all armed, they are outnumbered, does Peter, is his first response to run for the hills? No. He pulls his sword and he's ready to go out in a blaze of glory. As he said. And he cuts off the ear of someone before Jesus stops him and heals the ear. Peter means what he's saying. And yet even with all of that intention, all of that determination, he fulfills this prophecy to the T, showing that God is the one who's sovereign and sees everything and knows everything. You will deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. And it happens. That's amazing. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. He's speaking with such conviction that he's getting everyone else with him to go, Jesus, no matter what, we are going to die with you tonight. If this does go pear-shaped like you think it is, we are ready to die with you. And we've got to pause here and before we judge them too quickly. I want you to think about all the times you've thought you were going to be strong enough to stand until the pressure got turned up and you were found wanting. I'm sure you can relate to that. If you can't, I'll give you a story. I can relate to that. I remember uh, sitting outside of a pool in a beautiful hotel in Sri Lanka. It was like a five-star hotel, and Ethan and I very rarely get to experience these kinds of things. This was not paid with, with supporters' money, by the way. I just want to clarify. Um, we couldn't afford to go. And so OM uh, Arabian Peninsula, who are fairly rich because they've got oil money supporting them somehow, God's involved, um, they, they didn't want Anita and I to miss out. And so they blessed us and they, they paid for us to go and join this retreat. And it was a temporary reprieve from the dusty 50 degree heat of Oman that we lived in day and night. Suddenly, we're in this beautiful setting, five-star hotel, this pool. And I remember sitting around a table and our Romanian missionary friends sitting over here and our Canadian missionary friends sitting over here and our American missionary friends sitting over here. And we're all, everyone's bruised, right? I mean, you don't try and learn Arabic and live in the desert and come out of that like, whoo-hoo! I mean, we were two years in and it, life was hard. It was hard. And I remember just confessing to them and saying, <laughs> and Anita and I, we called it the misadventures of the woods. It was like two years of the story of the misadventures of the Woods family. Out of this whole missionary team, the people that constantly, something was going wrong, almost on a weekly basis, was us. Every small group meeting, what can we pray for? Let's pray for the woods. Pray for the woods for this. Let's pray for the woods for that. These poor guys had poured so much into us of love and encouragement and help over two years. And there I am sitting there, this beautiful setting, and I let something out that's been bugging me. And I tell them, I don't think I'm gonna make it. And 
um, Gabriel was the Romanian, and he, he looked at me and he said, but Mark, didn't you know that coming to the mission field and living on the mission field was going to be hard? And I said, I did know. And I thought I was strong enough. And I remember saying before we left, Lord, I will go. If no one else will go, Lord, I will go. And then you hear the statistics, more missionaries come back than are going. Oh, Lord, even if everyone else leaves, no matter how hard it is, we will stick it out. Two months later, we're back home. We haven't been back yet. You're looking at Peter. I'm hoping you can relate to that today. I've made vows to the Lord. I've said things to the Lord that I believed with all my heart. But when the pressure got turned up too high, I was found wanting. Everyone falls. But my encouragement to you tonight, and my second point is that one does stand. And we're going to see in Jesus, though he is weak tonight, because he stands and he does and is obedient to what God wants him to do, now we can all stand through him. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Gethsemane means oil press. That's the name of the word. And Jesus is about to be pressed incredibly. Uh, uh, the weight of the world's sin is going to be pressed upon him. Yes, the next day is when uh, he dies for it. But the shadow of the cross and the weight of our sin is bearing upon him now already. His body is starting to crack. It says that while he's praying, the blood is pouring out of his arms. The vessels are popping under stress. He is so stressed. This is not hyperbole when Jesus says, I am uh, greatly distressed and troubled. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Jesus feels like he's going to die already, even that night, because of the weight of the pressure that is upon him. This is the weakest I think we will ever see him. And he asks three of his disciples to be near him and to watch. He doesn't say pray yet. We think he means pray, but it's so far he's only said watch. He says watch. So stay awake, be alert. And he goes and he prays. And listen to what he prays. Abba, Father. He's just quoted Zechariah. He's just said, God will strike me. Yet when he prays, he's not praying to an angry God, a God who's this taskmaster disciplining him. He prays to his Father. Abba, and I learned Arabic, this is Aramaic. Abba is father. In, in Arabic, we say Abu. And anyone in the household will say that. The child will say Abu. The adult uh, will say Abu. If you're the father, we call, they say Abu. Abu Dhabi means father Dhabi. All of the Abus that you know. It means f dad, father. And Jesus prays, Abba, father. No one ever prayed like this before. 
We pray like this today, so we're familiar with it. But you know why we pray like this? We pray like this because of the example Jesus sets. And the Holy Spirit is inside of us. Paul says, it's by the Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. We are privileged, church, to be able to pray to Father. Before this, God was, you wouldn't even pronounce His name on your lips. There was so much reverence and awe around Him, and you would speak to Him in a certain way. Jesus speaks to Him, though He is being disciplined, though His body is breaking, though Jesus' will even is not aligned at this moment to the Father's, Jesus will still pray with intimacy, saying, Dad. And the implication is, I know you love me even though your hand weighs heavily upon me. I know you love me. Job says, though he uh, slay me, yet will I praise him. There's this example of faithful followers of God being able to endure suffering, suffering that might even come from God's hand. Though he slay me, though God slay me, yet I will praise him. That's what Job said. And Jesus is doing something similar here in the garden. He knows God's doing this to him, but he still says, Father. And there's love there. There's a love for God. There's a love from God. And then he prays according to God's character. He says, all things are possible for you. God can do anything. And Jesus knows that. And Jesus says that. To him. Nothing is impossible for God. Jesus is about to ask God for something huge. Why is he asking for something huge? Because he's a son. And he can ask. And God's power is unlimited, so nothing is outside of God's reach. When you pray, do you pray to Father? Or do you pray to a faraway God? A God that you feel is sometimes angry with you. That you're looking at life and the difficulties you're walking through in this life and wondering, is God um, hurting you because you're not up to scratch? Jesus sets this wonderful example, and I want to say to you, I felt for me, the Lord was saying, Mark, you've forgotten I'm your father. You've forgotten how much I love you. When you pray to me, pray to me as, as father even though my hand might weigh heavily upon you, even though you might not get what you're wanting. Pray to me as Father. And you can ask for anything. I want to say that to you this morning, church. You can ask Him for anything. It doesn't mean you're going to get it. But there's nothing He can't do. And I've been challenged recently. There's a lot of stuff happening to me that I'm going, is the Lord's hand in this, so I'll just accept it. But I'm not praying about it. I'm not saying, Lord, will you take this away? There's something significant in going, God, I know you can take this away. I know you can. I'm going to ask you for it because I'm your son. Have you stopped asking God for things because you've been disappointed by getting the no's in the past? Jesus' example in this prayer here is you can ask for anything. Jesus is asking for something big. He says, remove this cup from me. I don't want to go on the cross. Jesus' will in this moment, his human will, is breaking. He does not want to go through with the plan. 
So he says, God, everything is possible for you. That means that you can take this cup away from me. So I'm asking you to take it away. And sometimes we stop there. And here's the power. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus can still pray in that moment and go, Lord, if what I want is not in line with what you want, then what you want is what counts. And Jesus gets a no. You can do anything, God. You can take this cup away. No. And Jesus gets up and he walks nearby to these disciples and he finds them sleeping. It's after midnight. They've probably had a pretty full day. But if they were listening closely to what Jesus was saying, the adrenaline should be pumping. <laughs> guys, we are going to be tested tonight. You guys are going to fall away from me tonight. You are going to abandon ship tonight. And yet when he finds them, he finds them sleeping. And then he says this. I wonder if you picked up on it as well. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, because Peter's got two names. His original name is Simon. It means hearing. But Jesus has given him the name Peter, which means stone. And it's meant to be an encouragement to Peter that I see a, a strength in you. Okay? So you're not just going to be called Simon anymore. You're going to be called stone. And from then on, he just says, Peter, 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 Peter. This is the first time he said Simon in a long time. In my house, when Anita says my original name, Mark, I'm in trouble. Because the only thing I've been called in our marriage is love, honey, sweetie. I have all of these affectionate, I don't know, I, can't, I think it's just love, actually. But anyway, the point being, I know that, I know that she doesn't say Mark, because when she does say Mark, it sounds weird. I mean, the other day, she sent me a WhatsApp that said, hi, Mark. And, and I went, hi, Anita. What are we doing here? And, and, and she said, no, it was, she was sending me something off Google, whatever, and it was, uh, she didn't write that, it just sent it as, hi, Mark. That's how weird it was. When, when, when Anita says, Mark, I've done something wrong. And Simon Peter realizes in this moment Jesus, there's a little bit of rebuke here from Jesus to him. Simon, didn't you just say you're going to die for me? Didn't you just say you'll, you'll go through anything for me? Can you not keep awake for one hour? Now he changes the instruction. It's not the same instruction. The first instruction was watch. The second instruction is watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now he says to them, I want you to pray. This is important. And I want you to ask you, pray for who? Because we might think that he, without reading it properly, we might think that he's saying, pray for me. I'm under huge pressure. I'm going in there, intercede with me. But he's not saying that. If you read the text properly, he's saying, pray that you. Pray for yourselves that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus knows that very soon, 
the big test is coming on all of them. And the only way to be ready for the test is to watch and pray. So pray for yourselves. You can be ready for what's coming tonight if you will watch and pray. Pray that you don't fall into temptation. And Jesus doesn't just give the instruction as he always does. He models it. What is he doing? He goes immediately again for the second time, and he prays. He knows something big's coming, Lord. I'm feeling weak, Lord. I don't want this thing, Lord. I'm tempted here, Lord, to run. He could run. He knows where they are coming to meet him is in this garden. He doesn't have to stay there. I don't know if Satan's in the story yet. We know that he enters Judas, and when Judas goes off to uh, betray Jesus, Satan is with Judas. But I also think that that's a couple of hours earlier. I also think that somehow, he's not mentioned, but he's here. Because when Jesus is in the desert, and Satan tempts him, and Jesus passes the test, at the end it says in Luke that Satan left him and waited for a more opportune time. Can there be a more opportune time than Jesus, body failing, blood pouring out of him, and his own will being in uh, opposition to what God wants? I think Satan's there and tempting him. This is the time to tempt him. Can he fall? Will he fall? And Jesus prays the same words again. That encouraged me. I don't think we should be praying repetition prayers only. I think when the church does that, and we've got parts of the church that only do that, really, uh, I think that's pretty weak. We have a real relationship with God, a living relationship, and we can say anything to Him, and He speaks back to us. He speaks back to us every day. But in a weak moment... When you don't know what else to say, even Jesus prays the same words again. Isn't that fascinating? So he repeats it. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, but not what I want, what you want. And after he's finished praying, he comes back to the disciples who has now instructed, he's saying, you guys are going to be in trouble tonight. You are uh, going to fall into temptation. You are going to be tempted to run away and flee from me and abandon me. Watch and pray. And when he comes back, he finds them sleeping again, for their eyes were heavy, and they didn't know what to say. And a third time he goes and he prays, the same words. A third time he comes back. And he says to them, enough. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. My third point, my final point, is ready or not ready. When Jesus says it is enough, he's saying to them, you have had enough time to get ready. Your time for getting ready is gone. The hour 
that he has prayed will not come has now come. And I want you to watch what he does. Remember how weak he has been throughout the night. He says, rise, let us be going. Does this thing come upon him? No. He goes to it. That shows his readiness. How did he get ready? Through watching and praying. God strengthens him, even though there's three no's. No, Jesus. No. No. Just like Paul gets three no's. Jesus can hear the no and respond with a readiness to the trial that's coming and goes forth. That's powerful. He is ready. In John chapter, um, can you put the John verse on the screen, Debs? I don't want to turn to it in my Bible. I want to save some time. Um, John 14, I think. No, 18. Is it not there? There we go. John 18, verse 46. Look at this. This is one of my favorite verses of Scripture. The, the, the soldiers have come, and Jesus says, uh, they ask him a question, uh, who are you? He says, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Remember how weak he was? Moments earlier, lying on the ground, face first in the ground, I want this thing to pass from me. But through prayer, he has been strengthened, and now he stands, and he just speaks with authority at those coming to him with swords, and they fall down to the ground. This is not a man who's not ready for the trial that's coming to him. He has been made ready, and he confidently goes forward knowing that he is fulfilling exactly what God wants him to, and he is now in submission to the Father's will. He heads in that direction. He is ready. The disciples are not ready. They, instead of spending time watching and praying and preparing their hearts for what is coming, they have been sleeping, they have been resting. I'm sure they feel a bit better than they did a bit earlier. But when the moment comes and the swords are there, apart from one moment of courage from Peter, which uh, Jesus uh, calms him down on, once Jesus is taken into the hands of the sinners, the disciples run for their lives. They promised him. They vowed to him. They said, we will stand with you. We will die with you. We will be with you tonight. They abandon him when the pressure gets turned up, when they see there's no angels coming to save the day here. There's no miracle happening in this moment. Say so that Jesus is betrayed and walking away as a prisoner. They run for the hills. What's the difference between Jesus and the disciples? One was made ready through prayer and watching the others just let the trial come upon them. One was weak and prayed, and the others were overconfident, so full of assurance that they were going to be strong tonight, but so uh, slow to pray, and they fell away. The spirit was willing, and the flesh was weak, as Brendan shared earlier. They were willing in their spirit to do what Jesus had instructed. But the flesh was weak. 
as we come to closing and application, there's three things I feel strongly for you. The first one, and it comes from each of the points, the first one is the word, I go before you. If you have fallen and you find yourself sitting here in some shame and some guilt, I want to encourage you from Scripture. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not meant to live in a space of carrying shame and guilt for the mistakes that we've done. We, are, we can come to the Father. And He can restore us. And I want to say to you, if you are far off this morning, I think the Lord's saying that to some of you. He doesn't want you to be there. You don't need to be there. You can come. That requires confession. That requires being honest. That requires accepting who you are, not pretending to be something you're not, not coming with an overconfidence, I'm going to follow you no matter what, but coming with a real, this is who I am. And finding there that he loves you, that he accepts you. If you're far off this morning, my first application is come home. Come home. Why are you waiting out there? The second one comes from the prayer of Jesus. And I want to challenge you in your, your prayer life. Are you praying to God as a father? Do you know when you pray that he loves you? Even though you might be going through something awful, a lot of us are. Even though you might be wishing that this thing you're going through, God will just take away. Why won't he take it away? Does he not love me? Will you know this morning that he's your father? And he loves you. And there's nothing you can't ask him. You are a son and daughter in the throne room of the king. And his eye is on you. When they entered the king's chambers, they were coming to request something of the king. That's why they were there. And the king's eyes would look to the person. And if the king didn't like the person, the king would... Uh, uh, actually, I think he would sit motionless and then the person would be killed. If the king liked the person and found favor upon them, he stretched out his scepter and they would let the person speak. You are a son and daughter and the king's eyes are on you and you're in his throne room and you can ask him for anything. Have you stopped asking God for help? Maybe he's going to say no to the thing you're asking for. If he does, you're no different to Paul, you're no different to Jesus. The thing that will keep you going is, let your will be done, Lord. Let your will be done. I want your will more than my will. If you can get to that place, believer, you're going to be content. You're going to be comforted. I've got a brother with catatonic schizophrenia. I've prayed hundreds of times that the Lord will take it away. I don't understand why he doesn't. But I'm content in the answer. And I believe God when he says, I am in control, nothing is beyond me, and I'm going to say no here.
Do you trust me? Do you trust him with a no? The last application point I want to give to you is from the last point. There's trials, you are going through them, there's trials that are coming. Some you will know are coming, some you won't know. How can you be ready? You follow Jesus' instruction. Don't, when, if I had to ask you this question, who do you relate to in the garden? Who do you relate to? It wouldn't surprise me if you related to the disciples. If you felt, no, that's me. I'm going to drop the ball. I'm going to be asleep when I should be praying. I'm going to fail the test. We can relate to the disciples because they are weak of flesh and so are we. But I want you to look past them for a moment and go, that's not the example that you're being set for you. That's a low bar. And before you go, but they're the apostles. They don't have the Holy Spirit yet. The Holy Spirit's about to be poured out of them in the start of Acts. If you say, this will be me, you are comparing yourself to a follower of Christ who doesn't have the help you have in you. Jesus is setting the example for you in the garden. He also is dealing with weak flesh. He also is dealing with a will that doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. But he sets the example for you by saying, if you will watch and pray, God will make you ready. You will be ready for what's coming, even if it's a no to what you want. Even if you're saying, let what's coming pass, when it comes, you will be ready because you've been praying. And I want to encourage you, church, that should um, motivate you. You are in better position than the disciples. You have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inside of you helps you. When we don't know what to pray, He is praying. Jesus is now standing at the right hand of the Father, mediating for you, praying for you. Are those prayers not powerful? So when you are going through your trial, it is not a fate accompli that you are going to be like the disciples and fall. Actually, we can apply this part of Scripture to go, Jesus, because of you, because you were the one who stood, even though I have fallen many times in my life, I can stand this next trial. I can be ready for this next trial, and I'm going to be ready by being at your feet and being in prayer. And I want to encourage you, church, you need to be praying more. You want to be ready for the stuff that's coming, then you need to be a person who prays. And even if you're going, I don't know how to pray, the Spirit will help you. The testimonies tonight, uh, tonight, this morning, are you listening to them lining up with the word? Saki is praying and the Holy Spirit comes. After being a Christian for 30 years and nothing much going on, it's in a prayer moment that the Holy Spirit comes. Brendan is in anxiety and stress where he can't sleep at night. Raise your hand if that has ever happened to you. Okay? It's, and there's some people who didn't hear the question. Okay? So, so... The point being, after all of that, at some moment he goes, God, I'm giving this thing to you. And the Lord takes it and the Lord helps him. Now that doesn't always happen to us. Sometimes we say, God, I'm giving this thing to you and we find it's still there. I know I've been there. I get that. Then I'd go again. Help me, Lord. Help me give this thing to you. But these testimonies this morning are encouraging you. Church, your father loves you. He listens to you. You're not praying enough. You're not asking for his help enough. 
and you're not content with whatever answer he gives. And that's why you're not ready when the stuff comes, but you can be. Let's close our eyes. Father, as we consider um, Gethsemane this morning, we consider our fallibility. I'm grateful, Lord, that you have sent your spirit into these hearts of flesh and that because of him and his power, we can stand. And I first want to pray for that group that's sitting here this morning who are far from you and believing that they can't draw near. And we are praying for that group, Lord, those who are close to you. We are interceding for them. We're praying, Lord, would you call them? Might they hear your voice calling out to them this morning to come and draw near and to make things right with you? Thank you, Lord, for the promise in your word that you go before us and you meet us there and you speak to us there. And what you say to Peter, you say to us, do you love me? And I pray, Lord, that this morning there would be people who draw near to you and say yes, even though they've made mistakes. And that you'd restore them this morning, Lord, that you'd restore them to fellowship, you'd restore them to service, just as Peter's given tasks to feed sheep. Lord, there are things that you want each of us to do for you in your vineyard. And some of us have laid down tools because we feel like we're not good enough. I pray that this morning your spirit would come and revive our hearts and that we would embrace the cross this morning, embrace the victory that is in the cross. And that we would be restored, Lord. Lord, I pray if we have become prayerless, if we've become disappointed by prayer, disappointed by no's, feeling like you're a faraway God, that this morning hearts would be stirred to pray again today to you. An intimate, loving Father who is always the same. We sang about that this morning. You never change. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. May we be encouraged to pray for big things, Lord. May we be encouraged to pray for help. And may we be satisfied with whatever answer you bring, Lord, because we know that it doesn't mean you don't love us. We know that you love us, and we can trust you even if it's a no. And I pray, Lord, that as we become people of prayer, who spend more time on our knees and on our faces before you, that you would make us ready for the things that are coming, that we would go forward towards them as Jesus did, that we would not be afraid, but that we could act courageously in the face of difficulty, knowing, Lord, that you have strengthened us through prayer. In Jesus' name.
Amen. It's the end of the service. I've gone on a little bit longer than I should. That's unusual. Um, We can have coffee under the tent. Uh, Please enjoy it over there, and we'll see you next week Sunday.